Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we're looking at this round of bankers' bonuses. We have, for the first time, I think, really seen big shareholders in the UK stepping up their agitation on this issue. And UK banks are dipping into liquidity buffers as the ongoing squeeze on liquidity in Europe continues. Well, we're seeing all kinds of evidence that the kind of credit crunch that we had after the fall of Lehman might be building up again. And also HSBC receives a record fine for the mis-selling of products. 87% of the people who got sold this stuff were improperly sold it. Joining me this week is FT's retail banking correspondent Charlene Goff, Chief Regulation Correspondent Brooke Masters, and Investment Banking Correspondent Megan Murphy. And Megan, we'll start off on the bonus issue. My favourite uh, topic. Indeed. Bonus season still some way off. Next kind of January, February is when banks start paying their uh, their well-paid investment bankers all those bonuses. But it's already a huge political fury in, in the UK, particularly as ever. Brings up to date, what's, what's the particular outrage at the moment? Well, we've had a couple of things this past week or past couple of weeks. The first was the news that Lloyd's Banking Group may be looking to claw back bonuses paid to its former chief executive, um, Eric Daniels, as well as some other senior executives in connection with a massive fine they got for a, you know a charge that they took for selling PPI payment protection insurance so that's the thinking being that the PPI charge which was uh 3 billion yeah. pounds applied to a period when Eric Daniels had been chief executive exactly and therefore that he part of his bonus should be clawed back due to that charge they said this a few months ago didn't they Charlene I remember you writing on this yeah, the chairman sort of alluded to this at the AGM back in May. He said that the remuneration committee would go back and look over the bonuses and see whether they could potentially claw anything back. I mean, and and we, it's worth saying as well that it's not just Eric. It would it would um, it would be relevant to Tim Tookie, the finance director, who's actually acting chief executive right now, and also Helen Weir, who was uh, the retail chief during the PPI scandal. But personally, I get the impression, you know, first of all, that particularly Eric Daniels would fight this quite hard. I don't think he's going to take this lightly, this any attempt to claw back his bonus. But also, I think, you know, given that this issue was industry wide, that, you know, it was a voluntary decision by the new chief executive of Lloyd's to make this to take this hit. It Especially such a large hit. Yeah. Such a large hit. You know, people yeah. that I was talking about to this at the end of last week were saying, you know, well, as yet, we have no idea how much PPI will even cost Lloyds. You know, we don't know whether it will be anywhere near the three billion at the time. That seemed a very high number. I get the impression it's going to be a pretty tough legal fight if they want to do this. I mean, you know, I, I think there's, uh, you can see the logic for them to try and try and to do it. And, you know, you might think that people would voluntarily give up part of their huge bonuses, you know, having presided over a scandal of this extent. But I think that's probably that unlikely. It doesn't seem to happen very often. It's not just Lloyd's, though. UBS was also in the news with... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a sort of slow burn. And now it's sort of culminated in, you know, what 
you could call it intense political pressure. You could call it, you know, this general sort of looking for an easy target to hit. But we've had a couple other things. One is the Bank of England once again encouraging banks that instead, you know, as a way to sort of retain and preserve their capital to sort of look look at sort of not paying out as much bonuses to banks. And the other thing is obviously, as you mentioned, UBS, which suffered its own $2.3 billion trading scandal in September. Recently in an interview with the Financial Times, the chief executive indicated for the first time that they will look at taking a specific charge on their bonus pool in very soft indications, maybe something around 500 million Swiss francs or somewhere around that to indicate that they have they have taken on board the, the trading scandal and sort of that will impact their investment bankers pay. So in general, we're going into the always contentious bonus season with you know some pretty highly charged issues on both sides. And we have for the first time, I think, really seen big shareholders in the UK stepping up their agitation on this issue, where in prior years, even in the years immediately after the crisis of 2008, when banks, you know, sort of 2009, we had a very strong year, um, and, and even into 2010, and returns were still quite high. Now that returns at most banking groups have fallen down to sub 10% return on equity levels, we do see shareholders saying, look, you need to divide this pie differently. And you just can't. And and especially, and I think it is a really strong point, is that you can't just cut dividends. We don't want to see our dividends cut, but the bonus is being cut only 5% or 10% to make up revenues. You need to start dividing this pie up on a very different More ratio equitably, between, basically. between yeah. the different uh, between investors and employees and you know across the industry so that I which think is clearly is- a valid argument you've got on top of this you've got all the political kind of uh, rhetoric being stoked as well uh, not least around RBS which yep. as everyone knows is uh, 83% owned by the uh, by the UK government um, do you expect that to change significantly the way that RBS people are paid well RBS was one of the banks there were a few this qu- last quarter who who took zero, um, accrued zero bonuses in the third quarter. And they, so basically they'd zeroed out their bonuses and the only comp they accrued was for fixed salaries and obviously deferred that was coming through. So their bonus pool is actually going to be significantly lower than it has been in, in previous years, but their revenues are down, you know, a huge percentage as well. And the, actually the fall in the amount that they've accrued does not match their fall in revenue. So they're still going to face pressure on this. Their ratio is going to be higher. Their comp, they, the proportion of total revenue that they set aside for pay is actually going to be substantially higher this year. I think they are the bank that even if they set aside 500 million, they're still going to attract massive sort of pre- media and political commentary over this just because they just ne- never seem to be able to get it on the right track. And nothing is low enough. Nothing is, nothing is low enough. <laughs> no, quite. <laughs> Let's move on to the rather more immediate and fundamental pressures of liquidity in the, particularly in the Eurozone and the growing signs that banks that need to borrow in the markets, particularly from other banks in the interbank market, are struggling to do that. We saw a worrying spike in the amount that overnight taken from the ECB late last week, presumably a sign that at least one bank in the eurozone is desperate to get hold of hold of funding. We've also seen the cost of borrowing in the interbank market spike as well. Brooke, you've been looking closely at this. Well, we're seeing all kinds of evidence that the kind of credit crunch that we had after the fall of Lehman might be building up again. I mean, the, the central banks are trying to do things last week, we saw the coordinated action to make dollar funds available through the ECB. Basically, the ECB borrows money from the US and then can hand it out to European banks. This was uh, five of the central banks around the world getting together to in a coordinated action. Yeah. Right. And they've said that they will also do it if, if for somebody runs short of yen, they can do it with the Japanese. Yeah. The Bank of England is involved. Um, so they're, they're clearly setting up for another sort of liquidity rescue if necessary. So that's obviously, it's good that they're doing that, but it's also a really bad sign that they feel they need to. The other thing that we, we saw with last week on Thursday 
the Financial Policy Committee, which is the stability monitor for the UK, it's the newly created stability regulator, said that it was seeing a strong move towards covered bond funding rather than unsecured lending for the banks. To the, so to the extent banks are getting any money, they're having to pledge specific assets. And that's a really vicious circle because the more assets are pledged to covered bonds, the less unsecured creditors are willing to lend. So uh, unsecured uh, issuance of, of unsecured bond issuance was already uh, pretty dire. But if it's- you've got uh, kind yeah, of, uh, it's not getting any better. Spoken for is uh, yeah, it's going to be even more difficult to get anything away. And finally, the other thing that actually is even scarier in some ways is I sound like the blackbird of doom over here is the fact that the Bank of England and the FSA, which spent the first half of 2011 saying build up your liquidity buffers, you know, we don't care that Basel doesn't care. Basel isn't going to make you do liquidity for another three years. That's the global regulator. Yeah, that's the global. The global regulators have said do liquidity sometime in the future. The Bank of England and the FSA said do it now, and and the UK banks wine, like, all get out for the first half of this year. Well, now they're being allowed to dip into those buffers. And funnily enough, they've all st- started, at least privately, to say how great the FSA is. And, <laughs> and you know, how, how wonderful the buffers are. Yeah. Because they have cash and yeah. they have easy to sell things. So that's yeah. a, that. But the fact that they're having to dip in and the fact that the FSA, which has been really hard line about this, has said, yeah, you can use it, means they're all struggling. And they're, they're, and the banks are, their banks are stronger, largely, than the Eurozone banks. So if they're doing it, who knows what's happening across the... And this is all obviously fine if this is a short-term squeeze and um, you can dip into the buffers and then it'll all be fine in a few weeks' time. But There's that'll... no sign of, a, of the light at the end of the tunnel at the moment. Well, everyone's geared towards the end of this week, aren't they? And the latest Eurozone discussions between Sarkozy and, uh, and Merkel in particular and see what they produce this week. On to our final topic for the day, HSBC. This is a 10 million plus fine, I think, uh, Brooke. They're again... Uh, you've been uh, looking at this this morning. This is the fine from the the FSA uh, for mis-selling of elderly uh, or, or long-term care bonds to the elderly. Uh, it sounds like a particularly unpleasant mis-selling scandal. It's pretty nasty. It's um, about the only good thing you could say is it's only 2,500 customers. It's not millions. Basically, what they did is they sold long-term care pro- bond products, which are aimed at giving you five years to build up capital and income to pay for your long-term care. So when you go into care, you have money. They sold them to people who were average age 83, many of them already in care and needing cash immediately. Th- that essentially had the effect of doing is they would buy these bonds and then immediately tap into them and pay enormous penalties. They would have been better putting the money under their mattress. This um, is a really, I mean, I think this one is going to be generate some serious outrage among people because oh, yeah, I haven't read the defense what HSBC put forward to say, look, we didn't know this. We didn't know the average age. We didn't train our people well enough to sort of make these decisions. But the moral sort of issue around this is going to be quite tricky. Yeah. Is this going to really cause reputational damage, do you think, Charlene? I think it is. I mean, I, I think it's hitting on such a nerve and such a sensitive and vulnerable part of society. You know, these were people who didn't have a huge amount of money, who were in care already, like Brooke said. Mainly, the average age, I think, was 83 of the person who was sold these kind of high risk. They're not high risk, no, but they're, they're, they're long term. They're long high point. risk if you die straight no, after you Yeah, one. exactly. Exactly. So the average age was 83, you know. Yeah. And uh, to me, it's just really unscrupulous by the bank. I mean, we have seen examples of this kind of mis-selling come through, like we've had big fines for Coots, we've had big fines for Barclays um, and a lot of the problem has been that the banks just did not assess the kind of risks associated with these products. You know, Barclays, the example was that they were just calling investments safe or, you know, when they really weren't. Coots was a, a similar thing but this one, I think when, you know, you've actually got people that you're selling these bonds to who whose life expectancy is lower than the life of the bond. To me, I just don't know how that can happen. 
And is this just a point of fact here? Is this HSBC itself as the bank or is it a subsidiary that maybe they didn't have close control of? They bought its NHFA, which was the major provider of advice on long-term care products. They they sold 60% of all of these products in the UK from the period involved, which is 2005 to 2010. Which HSBC bought? It bought it. It bought it. It owned it. It owned it for the entire period. This is not something that happened before HSBC bought it. What's particularly appalling to me is this wasn't like poor controls. This was they've done a review. 87% of the people who got sold this stuff were improperly sold it. It sounds like an echo with a very unpleasant uh, aftertaste of the household acquisition Mm. in the US, which obviously came back to haunt HSBC internally. In addition to the £10 million fine, they're also on the hook for about £30 million of compensation, presumably to the families of of a lot of these victims. I guess for a bank like HSBC, the financial cost is tiny. Uh, The issue that's really going to hit hard is if this is reputationally damaging. There's no way it can't be. (laughs) The FSA does go out of its way to say, look, HSBC came to us and, and settled early. It seems, I'm still working my way through the documentation. It seems like HSBC, somewhere four years into owning this thing, finally did some compliance t- checks and got sort of concerned. So I don't think this is one where the regulator caught them and came after them. HSBC did ultimately find them, but it was in 2009. Well, we'll see. I don't think HSBC has yet issued a public statement. Or uh, they certainly... have. They've said they're very, very sorry. And this is not the the um, this is not the way they do business. And okay. that, oh, they did say, in case anybody cares, don't call them. They will be calling everybody they owe money. Yes, I suspect they might be rather <laughs> inundated otherwise. That's all we have time for, uh, sadly, for today. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Brooke and Megan for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Amy Tsang. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.